T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. Cook County this week closed the last three of its mass COVID-19 vaccination sites that it runs, except the coronavirus isn't going anywhere, and it's not the only thing county officials have to contend with. The plague of crime and violence continues, for one, but Cook County's budget outlook isn't as gloomy as it could have been, and the Federal Transportation Secretary stopped by to talk about spending billions to improve the way rail freight and traffic moves through the region. It sounds like a good time for a visit with the president of the Cook County Board. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this week is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who's already held the first of her virtual public hearings on the county's 2022 budget outlook. And she is having a busy month in what's been an extraordinarily busy year after the year that was, which was 2020. So we have a lot to talk about and we want to get right to it. And for the first time in quite a while, we are conducting this interview in the same room, uh, the president's office in the county building. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle, thank you very much for having me in. Well, thank you very much, Craig. It's great to see you in person. Likewise, very much likewise. Well, let's start with uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's uh, visit to our area, which is all tied in with the President's uh, American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, and general efforts to help localities uh, come out of this pandemic and the economic upheavals. How much good news is there in that regard for uh, Cook County? Well, I'm very grateful for President Harris and Vice President President Biden, let's start again. No, that's okay. <laughs> President Biden and Vice President, I hope she's president someday, and Vice President Harris's uh, emphasis on infrastructure. You know, it's really, it's really important in a country where we've had so many um, challenges around deferred maintenance to focus again on, on infrastructure because it's the kind of foundation of economic development. And we were very grateful to see Secretary Buttigieg uh, come to us to talk about uh, actually rail infrastructure. We were in a CSX uh, rail yard in Cook County, invited by Congresswoman uh, Marie Newman, and we were all grateful. There were many railroad reps as well as uh, other members of Congress and local elected officials there to talk about investments in in infrastructure. And I, I appreciate the fact that just as we recently had a big infrastructure bill in Illinois. The federal government is now focusing on infrastructure investments. And we have to keep our fingers crossed that, that, that those negotiations will continue. Um, what is the American Rescue Plan going to mean for suburban Cook County, especially since, uh, and, and we were doing some reporting on this at the end of the week, uh, that the coronavirus pandemic has had different impacts on different suburbs depending upon 
where they were before and and what kind of industry uh, they had. So it, it seems that uh, it's a mixed bag out there. Well, let's talk first about our efforts to, to deal with, with the virus. You know, we had six mass vaccination sites in suburban Cook County, and I'm very grateful to Governor Pritzker for his investment in those mass vaccination sites. We had National Guard members. We had health care professionals who were provided by the state, in addition to our health and hospital staff and um, our public health staff. And we couldn't have done it without the state support. And in the course of the last seven months, since the end of January, I think January 25th is when we opened our first mass vaccination site, we've vaccinated 870,000 people at those six sites. 870,000 people at those sites plus our hospitals and our clinics, but mostly at our mass vaccination sites. And in addition, uh, we vaccinated 400,000 people with our federally qualified health center partners, our community-based health center partners. So we've vaccinated about 1.3 million people uh, under the auspices of, of Cook County Health and Hospital System and Cook County Public Health Department. And I'm, I'm very proud of that work. And as I said, we couldn't have done it without the support uh, of the state and the governor and, and the National Guard. We're grateful to Adjutant General Neely and all of his folks uh, for their help and support. So. Um, as you said, the, the, the virus has had disparate impacts, and those disparate impacts are around um, geography and race. And we found that the communities of color uh, not only had the, the greatest detrimental uh, effects from the virus, that is double the infection rates and, and double the death rates in black and brown communities, um, but also, unfortunately, the lowest vaccination rates. And so we've, we've tried to address that challenge going forward with a hyper-local strategy to try to bring vaccines to work sites, to religious institutions, to community-based organizations, and work with those local uh, institutions to try to bring people in and get them vaccinated. Uh, this is a tremendous challenge. And what I, you know, I, wherever I go, I talk about the importance of vaccination, not just for your own health, but for everybody you love and care about. Uh, because even if, and this is particularly true of young people, even if you are, as a young person or a person in good health, um, and, and might get the disease and they have only mild effects. Uh, people around you who you love and care about because they have an underlying condition or because of their age um, might be seriously ill if they caught the disease from you. Um, and we know that, that thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people in our country have, have succumbed. Actually, it's more than 600,000 people now, more than have been killed in all of our wars put together. But, so we've got some real challenges. Is there any way to measure whether these hyper-local efforts are, are having an effect? Are you seeing either a steady flow of uh, vaccinations through that or, or maybe even an increase? Well, we just closed our, uh, our final three mass vaccination sites this past week, uh, and our focus will be entirely in these hyper-local initiatives, and it, you know, we look forward to seeing what the, what the metrics will be on those. But... It's only been in the last in the last week or so that we've ceased to do mass vaccinations. Um, are the hyperlocal efforts? Are they going to be in partnership with other with health providers? How is how is that going to work? Are, are buses everywhere? <laughs> what, what's it going to look like? Well, we're delivering some shots to individuals in their homes, but that's an extraordinarily time intensive uh, strategy. Now we're trying, as I said, to work with with religious institutions, community based organizations, civic groups. Uh, anybody who will have us, basically, to come to their event uh, and have it, help them uh, not only deliver vaccines to their constituents and their residents, 
um, but hopefully rely on them to drive people to the vaccination site as well. So it's a, it's a collaboration with whoever will work with us to try to get vaccines out to the people. Uh, I should also ask, uh, with regards to uh, the relief money that uh, that comes in, are there specific areas of the uh, the county that that are requiring more help than than others, and and how are you handling that uh, that distribution? Well, let me let me just say, I I, I want to encourage uh, our listeners uh, to go to engagecookcounty.com, engagecookcounty.com to give us your input about how we should be using these resources. We're going to get a billion dollars. We have to allocate it over the next three years and spend it in the next five years. So we have a a pretty significant uh, amount of time to do this economic recovery work. And I usually usually talk about it in, in sort of three general ways. You know, I think we're going to put some money into big ideas. The, the big idea that we talk about most often is broadband access. And we've got a quarter of the households in Cook County that don't have access to broadband. So we've got to address that, that challenge because, you know, you can't do remote learning. You can't apply for many jobs these days without getting on the Internet. If you don't have Internet access, you know, clearly you're disadvantaged. So one big idea maybe is investing in broadband. And th- there are other big ideas I'm sure we'll invest in. The second focus I usually have is on geography. There's some parts of our county, as you suggested, that are just challenged. They are challenged by um, lack of access to health care. They're uh, challenged by high numbers of unemployment, unemployed individuals in their communities. They're they're challenged by low levels of educational attainment, whatever. Um, So we've got to look at at geography in terms of our investments. And we know, frankly, that in, in, in this county, um, the south suburbs are particularly challenged relative to the rest of the county. So we will be investing in the parts of the county that are most challenged in terms of the possibilities for recovery. And then we know that there are particular uh, demographic groups that we might want to focus on. Young people who are 16 to 24 who are neither in the workforce or in school are particularly vulnerable and at risk. Uh, for not having good uh, life outcomes. So we might want to focus resources on being sure that those young people have the skills and talents they need to uh, become attached to the workforce and have better prospects for productive lives as adults. So those are just some examples, you know, having big ideas, looking at the geography of the county in terms of where the greatest need is and looking at our population in terms of what parts, what segments of our population are the most challenged. Uh, But we haven't, we haven't, come to any particular projects yet. We're just kind of figuring out what the guide rails are going to be and what the framework is going to be for uh, distribution and allocation of the resources. Is there a timetable for coming up with something more than just the, uh, the guideposts? We're, we're considering the framework at our July meeting uh, of the Board of Commissioners. Uh, and as the year progresses into, into later uh, this year, we'll, we'll probably come forward with some, with some projects. But we've got three years to allocate the money and, as I said, five years to spend it. So we're trying to be, be thoughtful and um, very careful about, about the resources. They're not infinite. Um, and we want to be sure that we make the best possible investments in recovery. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, cause, and, and I know we're, we're in an era where I can say that a $121 million budget shortfall is considered good news. Uh, but it is uh, because it's way lower than, uh, than the previous year. Uh, but your budget team, when they presented that, uh, that encouraging outlook, and I'm going to quote here, Federal relief and prudent financial management have contributed to the encouraging budget picture. But with all the things we're talking about now, how do you keep from 
trying to do too much? How do you not want to reach far? Because you're going to have a lot of ideas that are going to come to you and you're going to have a lot of people, whether it's hunger or poverty, health concerns, who are going to say this needs help too. How do you not do much more than perhaps prudently you would want to? Well, first of all, I'm very grateful to our to our financial team, uh, Amar Ritsky and our uh, financial staff, you know, have been, have been great. They put us in a position where we're in better financial shape than, neither to say, the city or the state or most local units of government. So I'm, I'm proud of the work that we've done over the de last decade and Amar and his staff are doing now to address the fiscal challenges that the county faces. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is, I mean, I, I say all the time to people when they come, with me, come to me with ideas, you know, we have to do things that are going to have an impact in the next five years, but don't have a sustainability cost to the county beyond that. Um, so we have to make a real impact in these next five years and not uh, incur ongoing uh, costs that will put us in bad, at a bad fiscal position five years from now when the money runs out. But on the other hand, the kinds of deep-set problems that you want to deal with uh, many of them require long-term solutions. So it, it, does that have to come out of another pot? Uh, well, we, well, first of all, I mean, <laughs> for, let's take the broadband example. If you invest in fiber optic cables on highway right-of-ways, you, um, you can extend the fiber optic cable and give more communities an opportunity to, to have access to broadband. Okay, that's an infrastructure investment that has a certain time period in which you get it done and is done, right? I mean, there are no um, ongoing costs of that. So that's one idea, the, the broadband access. But there are other investments that we can make um, in infrastructure. That's the easiest example that improve um, economic outlooks. For example, we've in, the, in our uh, transportation and highway department, we've put a lot of emphasis in building roads around um, economic assets. So some of our large manufacturers, of course, we've, we've tried to have um, the kind of um, road access to the highways that they need and good local streets so they get their trucks in and out. Those kind of investments support our uh, job creators and, and enable economic development. So there, there are lots of kinds of things. The best examples, I think, the easiest examples are infrastructure that you can make that you can do over a period of time and you're done and there's no um, there's no recurring cost. But we've got to figure out the investments that we make that will have an impact and, as I said, are not going to burden taxpayers beyond this five-year period. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. My guest is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and we are recording this interview in her office in the county building. Well, I want to turn to uh, another of the uh, top issues. You know, we were talking about health care. Well, we're also treating the scourge of violence as a health care issue as well. And I know this uh, month the uh, county announced investment of $1.5 million to community groups with the idea of addressing the root causes of crime and violence in Cook. And people hear us use that term, root causes, all the time, uh, and they nod, but I'm not sure they necessarily think beyond that about what we're talking about. What does that mean on the ground and in the neighborhoods? Well, if you took a map and you overlaid you know, the communities, first of all, that have the highest unemployment rates, the communities that have the lowest levels of educational attainment, the communities that are food deserts, um, the communities that have poorly functioning public schools, you know, it's the same neighborhoods, it's the same uh, communities. 
So when we talk about the, the roots of crime, and they're the same communities that have the highest levels of violence, right? And in, in the city of Chicago, I think it's 12 to 15 communities in which most of the shootings and the murders take place. So these communities are struggling in a, in a multitude of ways um, in addition to the violence. And you know, it seems to me that we've got to have a multi-pronged strategy. I'm very grateful to um, Garland from the Department of Justice, Secretary Garland, for coming to Chicago to talk about seizing illegal weapons and having a, a, a basically a big city strategy across the country for trying to deal with illegal guns. That, that's really important, and I'm grateful to them. Um, we also, however, have to um, look at our own uh, police resources and how they're deployed and how effective they are. You know, we have a, uh, a closure rate for murders in the city of Chicago that's substantially lower than the national average. And what that means is um, that people on the street believe that they're not going to see justice in the courts. They're not going to see justice in the traditional ways. And so they're tempted, if somebody in their family or their, their group is, is shot or killed, to take, take matters into their own hands and seek vigilante justice. So unless we can do better on, um, on arresting the people <laughs> who are accused of crimes, um, we're not going to have community confidence and, and the, violent, the, the cycle of violence will continue. And I, I, I want to say, too, I'm, I'm grateful to see that this past week the city council enacted with an overwhelming majority, I think there were 36 votes in favor, the Empowering Communities for Public Safety legislation that gave civilians for the first time input in police operations. I think that's, that's really important as well. And, and as with most things, the, uh, it'll be the details as they're working that out that we will uh, watch closely. Details, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but let's go head on on what you just uh, started to talk about here, and that is what police are doing versus what the courts are doing, what people are hearing around all of this seems or sounds like finger-pointing. Um, Mayor Lightfoot and Police Superintendent uh, David Brown say too many dangerous people are being freed by the courts while awaiting trial on bond or electronic monitoring. State's Attorney Kim Fox uh, says that police are arresting too many people on simple gun possession and not enough of the people doing the shooters. It's people going back and forth. What do you say to to those people who are just like looking back and forth like, wait, can they... Uh, can, are they both wrong? Are they both right? What, what's, what should we believe? You know, I think when you face a tremendous challenge, it's your obligation as an elected official to try to help people understand what's happening um, and what you're going to try to do about it, you know. Um, this, is a, this is an extraordinary moment in our country, and across the country, I think we've seen in our, in our large cities a 30% increase in crime and violence. It's not just Chicago. This is a challenge across the country. Um, Chicago has some particular challenges around the availability of illegal weapons and the entrenched nature of our street organizations. So we've got a, a national crisis and we've got some particulars that make things even worse here in Chicago, even more challenging here in Chicago. So I, I think the first thing is you've got you to talk about <laughs> how we got here and then what you're going to do. Now, you know, we in the county uh, have been pursuing criminal justice reform um, since 2013-2014. I'm very grateful for the fact that our actors have been willing to work together. That's the chief judge, the state's attorney, the sheriff, the public defender, the clerk of the court. All have been working together to try to address the challenges that we face 
um, since 2013-2014. And I'm, I'm proud of the progress we've made. You know, what, we've, what we've done is reduce the number of people accused of nonviolent crimes detained in the jail awaiting trial. So again, they're, they're not convicted, they're accused. The jail population is down almost by half. It was about 11,000 when I came in, it's now about 5,900. And as the sheriff will tell you, 800 of those people should be in state prisons, um, and the state prison system has not been um, willing to, to um, bring these folks into our state prisons, and as a result, they're sitting in our local jail. So the, I would say, you know, fairly, if you take out the people who should be in state prison, the, the jail population's been reduced by half, and I think that's a really good thing. And the work we've done around bond reform, criminal justice reform, um, has been confirmed by Loyola University researchers whom we've engaged to examine the impact of our policies. And the narrative that it's somehow the fault of the county, either the courts not being open, which they have been, by the way, um, or that people are out on bond who are, you know, a danger, not true, um, is just a false narrative. And we have the data to prove it. And, and those who suggest otherwise don't have any data. They're just, you know, they're making up something that, that fits their view of the world rather than having any... Um, support for their views, and it's, it's profoundly discouraging to me. Although what they very often will do is cite anecdotal things, and yes, the, the statistics will show only a tiny percentage of uh, people who are let out on bond uh, reoffend. Um, but there are going to be those. There are going to be cases where someone does and someone kills someone, and those are the things that scare people, frankly. Yes, they, they bubble up. But, you know, so there are about 4,000 people in electronic monitoring, for example. Every day, three people are arrested who are on electronic monitoring, and one of them is arrested for a violent crime, not necessarily a murder. So this is a very small number of the people who are, <laughs> are on electronic monitoring who, who don't comply, you know, aren't conforming. Um, but as you say, there are these... Um, aberrations and they're lifted up as normality and that you know that's just it's convenient um, to point fingers rather than trying to acknowledge the magnitude of the challenge we face and how we're going to work together um, to address it and that's what's so discouraging to me it's easy to, it's easy to point figures it's hard to work together in a problem like this that that uh, the violence in our communities that is often seen as intractable but aren't these aren't the parties who are all involved, whether it be the police, the state's attorney, the chief judge, aren't they talking to each other? And if they aren't, why aren't they? Um, but, and aren't they, shouldn't they all be dealing with the same set of facts and sitting down in a room somewhere saying, okay, what do we do now? The county actors have been working together, as I said, since 2013. Um, there's there not an agreement between the city and the county on the facts. However, uh, we work at all levels in the county uh, with counterparts uh, on the city and staffed at the staffing level. Um, and we will continue to try to maintain those relationships. Is there anything that could be done uh, in, the, in the near future that could lower the temperature, and raise the level of cooperation? Um, well, you have to have people who are willing to cooperate rather than point fingers, I'm hopeful. Before we leave the issue of, uh, of violence, I do want to go back to the kinds of programs uh, that 
will be affected uh, by that one and a half uh, uh, million dollars. Uh, what are you seeing or what's the staff seeing out there that does offer promise? What are the kinds of programs that could make a difference on those streets? Well, let me just say, I mean, we put an extra uh, $1.5 million into some groups on the west side of Chicago at a press conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, North Lawndale Employment Network was one of those organizations, and they do a lot of uh, street intervention work, trying to recruit folks who they know are at risk, uh, people who have, been, uh, who have been involved, engaged in the criminal justice system, uh, and trying to get them into a more productive path. And, you know, we talk about getting more jobs and, and such into neighborhoods, more uh, development. But the kinds of shootings that we have seen recently where people sp- spray crowds with bullets, uh, it doesn't seem as if those are the kinds of people who would be out looking for jobs. And, uh, you know, is there some other dynamic that we're seeing out there on the streets that we're not touching and not reaching? Well, I think that it's part of that is effective policing. You know, as I said, um, you know, you've got to <laughs> you've got to you've got to focus on the most violent crimes, and you've got to clear them. You've got to arrest somebody for people to have confidence in our justice system. And as long as that's not happening at the national level, um, as I said, people feel like they should seek justice themselves, and that's vigilante justice. So that's a that's a tremendous challenge. So I. I you know, we've got to have a multi-pronged strategy. We've got to invest in communities that are struggling, in economic development and community development, community building. At the same time, we have to deal with the people who are criminals and need to be, uh, need to be detained and need to be imprisoned. Um, so it's, it's not one or the other, it's both. But it's also a balance. Um, more aggressive policing also has the, you know, the potential to be more oppressive, more uh, racial policing. It also has the, the potential to uh, be a matter of conflict with people who don't trust the police in the first place and don't want to go to them. Right. I guess I wouldn't use the term aggressive. I'd use effective. You know, you've got to, you've got to have a police force that's effective. And, and police officers have to see themselves as guardians. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure we're there in Chicago. And... That's surely where we need to be. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, one of the things we have to do is, and this is um, not counterintuitive, we have to encourage more uh, black and brown young people to be police officers because, you know, it's, it's our black and brown communities that struggle the most with violence. And so if we don't have black and brown police officers, we're not going to have people uh, on the police force that local community people identify with, and that's going to make the challenge even greater. Are you hopeful that somewhere in this dialogue, which admittedly gets political at times, there may be room to encourage and something that will encourage people, more people, to want to be police officers? You know, if we want our communities to safe, be safe, we have to help make them safe. And so um, I, I think we've got to do a lot, of more, lot more work in, as I said, brown and black communities to try to get young people um, to serve as police officers, and we've got to change the culture in the police department. I mean, uh, you know, the, we often talk about, you know, <laughs> uh, the sort of not snitching culture in communities. Well, there's a sort of not snitching culture in the police department, too. And so bad police officers are not held accountable, and that means that, that those of us who are residents and not in the police force think that they'll cover up for no matter what happens. I mean, you know, 
Jason Van Dyke got whatever it was, two and a half, three years in jail. But that was like, it was decades, decades. And when no police officer was ever charged with murdering uh, one of our residents, and we know that that, that 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 happens all too frequently, and police officers are not held accountable. And as long as, as, long as people believe, um, as I do, um, that the police department does not hold its own officers accountable for their bad behavior, they're not going to talk to the police. Why would you? you know? So unless the police department cleans up its act about bad officers, and Jason Van Dyke had a number of complaints against him. He never should have been on the police force when he, when he murdered that young man, never, Laquan McDonald. He never, he, given his record, he should have been gone long before that, and he wasn't. He was still there. So, you know, I mean, if you're not going to hold bad police officers accountable, people won't have confidence in the police at all. So that has to be, and I hope that, that the civilian review process that was just approved by the city council helps address that issue. That is going to be the final word on this. Thank you very much. That is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. Thanks for spending the half hour with us. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. There should be a link a little ways down the homepage. You can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.